So, Jay, I've been thinking about alternate timelines. As one does. And I feel like a lot of the disambiguation comes down to who Mystique procreates with. Whom? But tell me more. Okay, so there's, like, Rays in that one timeline. That's Mystique and Logan's kid, right? Right, from the same timeline where she's got the kid with Xavier. Honestly, the less said about that one, the better. But, yeah, I'm starting to get your point. Or Age of Apocalypse, where she and Sabretooth have a kid. Dude, Mystique and Sabretooth have a kid in 616. I thought Nightcrawler's 616 dad was Azazel. Or did they retcon that away? Tell me they retconned that away. Alas, they did not. But no, I'm not talking about Nightcrawler. But he was their kid in Age of Apocalypse, yeah? Yeah. So if Nightcrawler is what you get when Mystique and Sabretooth have a kid in the Age of Apocalypse, what do you get in the main timeline? A supervillain. That is somehow profoundly unsurprising. And baseline human. Okay, that's somewhat more surprising. Who co-founded the rabidly anti-mutant Friends of Humanity. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 151 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to us back to the studio, because we were just at Emerald City Comic Con doing a live episode, and it was kind of great. So if we sound tired, that's because the thing about four-day conventions is that they take about a week to prepare for and a week to recover from. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, when they hear that, hey, we're going to go and work a convention, they're like, oh, that sounds amazing. It's going to be so fun and relaxing and like a no, fun yes. No, it's but... basically 20-hour workdays of intense social contact and needing to be on at all times, followed by meetings, more prep setups, and frantically putting together um, one-inch buttons in your hotel room. So many buttons. But that being said, it was really great seeing so many of you. Like, conventions are exhausting, yes, but they are so rewarding, like, specifically for that reason. Like, seeing a bunch of people in a live audience, seeing people come to our party. You're all really alarmingly attractive people. Like, we mistrust you. You know, that's kind of true. It's a little uh, almost unsettling. We have very uh, polite and conscientious listeners and also, like, really attractive listeners. What's up with that? It's weird. Yeah, seriously. What the hell is wrong with you people? You know, maybe they're life model decoys. Maybe that's it. I sort of assume so. It would explain how they're all so civil, too. Mm, that could be it. But anyway, we are back here in the studio, and we are also back here with continuity after doing our interview live episode. <laughs> continuity. Who needs that? We're just going to stop talking about continuity. I mean, look, we're coming up on days of future present. I feel like continuity is a shaky term to use right now anyway. <laughs> there is that. What we're also coming up on is the next big X crossover, which is the Extinction Agenda. And this is actually our last episode of Standard Issues. Before it, we're going to be all caught up with New Mutants X-Factor and Uncanny X-Men for what leads into the Extinction Agenda. Not Excalibur, because that doesn't actually get involved in the crossover. Excalibur also weirdly doesn't get involved in the set of annuals we're going to be looking at between now and the crossover, which is Days of Future Present. And I say weirdly because Rachel Summers is pretty much the main character of that. Yeah, Excalibur and Wolverine are just sort of off to the side at this point, which honestly I kind of like simply because three books to follow that influence each other all the time is sort of enough. Well, Wolverine himself is showing up in X-Men a bunch, so. Oh man, speaking of, to briefly tangent, so we just got the reveal of the new Resurrection book, the sort of secret one that they were holding back, Astonishing X-Men. Which is basically X-Force. Well, I don't know, it's got a bunch of, like, strange combinations of characters. But it also has Old Man Logan, which means he's now on Astonishing X-Men, he's going to be on X-Men Gold, he's in the Weapon X team, and he has his own Old Man Logan comic. Like, we're reaching previous Logan levels of saturation here with Old Man Logan. And I'm really angry about this because no sooner do they introduce a Wolverine who I'd actually like to see become ubiquitous, who I wouldn't mind having in every X-Book, than they just import a Logan from a different universe and just slot him back into that role. Yeah, I mean, I would not mind seeing more of Laura Kinney. She's still going to be in her solo book, All New Wolverine, which is awesome. I mean, I love Tom Taylor's work on that book. But it would be nice if she was, like, on a team. I mean, she's been in Hopeless's all-new X-Men, and that's been cool, but that won't be the case anymore. It would be nice if making her into Wolverine wasn't starting to feel like lip service. I mean, if she's going to be Wolverine, let her be Wolverine. Yeah, seriously, which means let her be a little overexposed in terms of the number of books she's in. Yeah, let this actually be a legacy. Let her actually take over and become Wolverine proper and have that central role in the universe, or at least a more central role than 
the old dude who looks like the old dude who she's nominally replacing. Like, come on, this is some ridiculous Barry Allen back from the grave bullshit. <laughs> Only worse. I mean, I have to assume that the decision to put old man Logan everywhere is because the movie Logan just came out and he was the But main you know character. who else is a main character exactly. in that who isn't played by an actor who's leaving the franchise? Right. I mean, Laura Kinney, you know, all the lead performances in Logan were good. I mean, and we're not going to go into a big full review here or anything. But Laura's was incredibly strong, and I really hope this makes her more central in the eyes of movie viewers and comics readers, and I would hope that they would give her more exposure in comics land as well. Logan has come to represent for me, like in the Marvel lineup, he's become sort of the avatar of old white dudes clinging to relevance. Like, these are the guys who would rather import alternate universe versions of themselves than let a girl step in. Yeah, it can feel that way a little. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I like old man Logan, but, you know, come on, Marvel. The irony is that as he's characterized, I don't think Logan would have time for that bullshit. Right, like, this is a Logan who is, above all other things, tired. Like, he just wants to sit on his easy chair and read I, the paper. I was thinking OG Logan, but yeah, this Logan is old, and he should get to retire and, like, go somewhere with a pickup truck and hang out with bears or whatever. <laughs> that's pretty much how retirement works. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to get to retire. So I'm No, gonna... if you're Logan, I assume that's basically how retirement works. You get a little cabin in the woods and you hang around with the local wildlife and you occasionally kill poachers and okay. like feed their bodies to wolves. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, all of that very much aside. And then Sabretooth comes and ruins it. He does tend to. It's true. Uh, but all of that very much aside, we are here to talk about a few issues of Uncanny X-Men. Now, we're going to be covering not three contiguous issues, because we skipped number 264. Instead, we went straight to the three-part Storm and Gambit arc, the last Uncanny episode we did. So today is 264, which is some Fortune Banshee stuff, and then 268 and 269, which will bring us neatly up to the Extinction Agenda. 268 and 269 are basically one-shots. 264 is mired heavily in the continuity of multiple series to a point that I actually found kind of confusing, so that's going to be a fun one to unpack on air. Well, that sounds like a perfect time for Previously on X-Men. After a series of defections, apparent deaths, and trips through the life-resetting Siege Perilous portal, the X-Men are no more. Well, kind of. There are still X-Men, and they're divided into a few groups right now. Team A, I mean, they're not actually called Team A, we're just calling them that for organizational purposes. We could call them Team 1. We could call them Team 1. Or Team, team Alpha. Team Alpha A1 is basically Forge and Banshee. They were hanging out with these short-lived Muir Island X-Men. They're running around in the traditional yellow and blue, but sexified by evil sexy Moira. I do appreciate outfits. that it's gender-neutral sexified. Like, everyone's got the weird sort of, um, the, the, the embroidered thong. over thong situation. I think it's in the back, too. Well, I mean, a thong in the back is somewhat normal. A thong in the front's kind of weird. No, that's basically early 90s G-string coverage. Dude, you're dating someone who waxes junk for a living. Ask her about the history of the Brazilian and how it came to popularity relative to swimsuit fashion. Okay, I will. And then I'll you do a should. Okay, okay. <laughs> but anyway, Forge and Banshee, uh, they've been traveling around trying to find the X-Men because they've heard that the X-Men are, in fact, still alive, that they didn't die in the fall of the mutants, although they haven't figured out the Siege Perilous thing very much yet, but, you know, we'll get to that. Uh, right now, Forge and Banshee are actually in New York City. They met up with an amnesiac colossus in the Morlock Tunnels. We talked about that story in our last Uncanny episode, or rather two ago. And a likewise amnesiac and physically significantly altered Callisto. Colossus is currently living as a painter named Peter Nicholas. Callisto is a model who just goes by Callisto, and neither of them has any memory of the X-Men or their time with them. Now, Forge and Banshee and Colossus and Callisto are also hanging out with a couple of refugees from the mutant enslaving nation of Genosha, which is about to become a real big deal again. These are Philip Moreau, human son of the Genegineer, and Jenny Ransom, Philip's mutant girlfriend, now altered by Genosian science to be super badass. Right, she can, like, you know, lift trucks and stuff. Team Chartreuse is Wolverine, a newly ninjaed Psylocke, and Jubilee. They are running around Madripoor having silly adventures. And Team Gazelle is a de Storm and her new thief buddy Gambit. They were in Illinois, then they sort of started hopping around the whole country, and now they're just sort of generically waiting to be put back into the plot. Now, you may have noticed that there are a number of recent X-Men who aren't on teams. That's because they're running around individually following their passage through the Siege Perilous. So Dazzler, we have seen her. She ended up without her memories in Hollywood, and she's been doing movie stuff, hanging out in Lila Cheney's old house, getting stalked by cokeheads, you know, the usual thing you do in Hollywood. Yeah, having Dazzler the movie sequels, which is just sort of, it's the sequel nobody asked for ever under any circumstances. No, a know. Beauty and the Beast sequel, that I would go for. Right, I would be all over that. Havoc and Rogue, who went through the Siege Perilous somewhat later, and Longshot, who just sort of wandered away, haven't really been seen since. We'll be checking in with one of them later this episode. Now, those are all the X-Men, but we're not just talking about X-Men because the X-Men and X-Factor are starting to cross over a little bit more. Which is to say Team A-Alpha-Pumpkin-whatever 
that being Forge and Banshee, have met up not only with the amnesiac Colossus and Altered Callisto and with Philip Moreau and Jenny Ransom, but that batch is currently hanging out on ship with X-Factor. They ran into them, I believe, very early into the 4 and 20 Blackbirds story. And a cop named Charlotte Jones, who we talked a lot about in the Raven's arc of X-Factor, she shows up as well. Now, this, I should note, is before the Raven storyline, because Uncanny X-Men 264 was from a little while ago. So, got all that? It's a lot to uh, take care of. But the great thing about podcasts is you can rewind and listen to that part again, or just listen to all those episodes over again if you have a whole lot of free time. And you can also possibly stay very confused, because Uncanny X-Men 264, man, the timeline is just... I have trouble with this one. I'm bracing myself. I am keeping my hands and feet in the vehicle and generally staring in wide-eyed bewilderment. So speaking of bracing yourself and of vehicles, this issue opens with Forge slamming into the windshield of a cop car. Hello, Forge. Hello, cop car. Oh, and he's got some great gritty dialogue to go with it. Alphabet City, neighborhood on Manhattan's Lower East Side, where the island forms a sort of bulge. Guy in my platoon said the avenues, A, B, C, and D, stood for assault, battery, concussion, and death. Far as he was concerned, the NOM was safer. My first visit, I'm inclined to concede that Joey may have had a point. I'd make a joke about getting a name meaning you get killed if you're a side character, except this dude, if he was in Forge's platoon, is clearly already dead. Right, so, you know, it still worked out just a long time ago. That's just Claremont being very efficient. His NPC-type characters are now dying before they even have a chance to show up. This is a Derridian death. He was always already dead. Always already dead. Oh, man, I haven't thought about Derrida since college. Not very much, anyway. Really? Because I think about him every day. Always already? Yeah. Well, anyway, in this cop car, it's not just any old cop car because it is inhabited by one Charlotte Jones and one her partner, a guy named Murphy. Given that he only gets one name and he is partnered with someone who is a major character, it's fair to assume that he's also super doomed. So what are the odds that it would be Charlotte Jones specifically in this cop car of all the cop cars in New York that Forge slams into? Look, she's one of like three cops in New York based on X Factor. Pretty much, yeah. There's just a few cops. There's just a few reporters. There's just a few doctors. We know how New York works. Either that or maybe it's like a clone scenario or a Matrix thing. Charlotte Jones is just everywhere because there are like 70 Charlotte Joneses. That makes sense to me. But anyway, the reason Forge just slammed into a cop car is because he is being chased down and shot at by a bunch of Genosian magistrates. To remind everyone, Genosha, that mutant enslaving country we mentioned in the previously on X-Men, they've been pissed at the X-Men for a long time, ever since the X-Men showed up a little bit before Inferno and wreaked some holy hell in their country. They're also after Philip Moreau, the son of the Genegineer, and Jenny Ransom, one of their mutate slaves. Now, we're going to go back and take a closer look at Genosha's social structure when we get to the extinction agenda. But for quick context, it's a human supremacist society. Mutants are enslaved and basically reprogrammed as these things called mutates who have their minds partially wiped. And they will do anything to track down rogue mutates. They are aggressively anti-mutant. And they have chased off Philip Moreau and Jenny Ransom, who are a particularly valuable pair of characters since Moreau is the son of basically the highest authority on the island to New York, where they claim they have authority to blow shit up, which is patently untrue, I would think. And yet. I mean, they seem pretty convinced. Now, Charlotte Jones and Murphy get out of the cop car to figure out what the hell's going on and are quickly confronted by these magistrates who are after Forge. Murphy isn't so sure about this whole thing, you know, paramilitary dudes showing up and tracking down a random mustache guy, and reaches for his gun, which it turns out is a mistake. Yeah, he gets gunned down, the magistrates fire at Forge and Jones, and then they blow up the car with a rocket. Now, why are they after Forge specifically? My understanding is it's because Forge was recently hanging out with Philip Moreau and Jenny Ransom, and so they figure he's going to be the way to them. Okay, that sort of makes sense. Well, the blown-up car, I mean, seriously, like, they just shoot a rocket launcher at the cop car. That seems really excessive. Even if they can justify we're chasing a fugitive from our own country, even if they're allowed to track these people down to the states, that they've still got to be constrained by some some rules regarding law enforcement activity within the other country, right? Or at least not shooting cops and blowing up cop cars. I mean, that seems a little excessive. Well, not blowing things up in general. Like, that's sort of the definition of excessive force. I mean, you know, it depends on who you ask. Michael Bay, for instance. It's just, for him, it was Tuesday. Have you ever seen Michael Bay's The Great Gatsby? It is the greatest thing it's on the internet. It's a cracked article, and I love it so much. Yes, uh, listeners, you should pause the podcast and go check it out, because it's funnier than we are. Yeah, we'll link to that in the visual companion. It's quite a thing. Okay, so now we assume you're back from checking out that article. Welcome back. So, Forge and Charlotte Jones from the exploding cop car get knocked into the sewers through a nearby storm grate, because, you know, the sewers under New York, as we've come to learn in X-Men, are basically as big as the city and not as gross as you would think. That's actually kind of true. 
I've never been to New York. I mean, I've been to New York. I've never been to the New York sewers. Where do you think the manhole covers lead? To the Ninja Turtles. Where do the Ninja Turtles live, Miles? In cartoons. And Forge is still narrating like the hard-boiled badass he is. Uh, Name drops Misty Knight. And man, why can't Misty Knight be in this? Why has Misty Knight not shown up in X Factor, actually? She's in New York. She's Jean's former roommate. Her current partner dated Cyclops briefly. Like, why have there not been super awkward reunions? So basically what you're saying is Misty Knight should just show up whenever it's possible for Misty Knight to show up. Yes. If you are writing a comic book set in the Marvel Universe, the correct thing to do is that if you can justify in any way, no matter how roundabout the inclusion of Misty Knight in your comic, put Misty Knight in your damn comic because she's awesome. Aside from talking about Misty Knight, who comes up, by the way, because Charlotte notices that Forge has a prosthetic robot leg, just like Misty Knight's arm, Forge explains to Charlotte what's up. You know, these are the Genosian magistrates from another country. They're after some folks, and they are not afraid to murder the hell out of whoever gets in their way. So here, put on this really creepy bodysuit. Right, because their clothes are all messed up from, you know, getting half blown up and falling into the sewers. So Forge pulls out an X-Men uniform from his, it's basically a, a Native American bag of holding, as near as I can tell, right? Oh, I just assumed that the costume had that little fabric or was that thin. <laughs> that could be it as well. But he pulls out one of Evil Sexy Moira's new X-Men costumes for Charlotte. She does the requisite, you know, oh, this is like way too overly sexualized and why would I wear something like this? Forge points out, hey, you know, it'll keep you warm and dry. It's basically bulletproof. So probably you should go ahead and wear it. And I gotta say, aside from that weird thong thing going on, like, Charlotte looks pretty awesome in an X-Men costume. The heels are dubious. Okay, aside from the thong thing and the heels, I guess what I'm saying is she looks awesome in a superhero costume, and I wish she would hang out with more superhero teams and do stuff. One, not everyone needs to be a superhero. Two, it's just not that practical a costume. I mean, the bulletproof thing makes sense, but I feel like you'd at least want to wear something with pockets over it. Well, she does. She wears her cop jacket over it, and Forge wears his leather jacket over it. Oh my god, it's like watching the 90s take shape before our eyes. God, it really is. Do you remember that period of the Avengers where they all had bomber jackets with like little Avengers logos on the shoulders? They were probably warm. I suspect they were. And cozy. I mean, those things are like soft. You could just sort of cuddle up and fall asleep. Aww. In between fighting, you know, blood axe or whatever. It would be hard to resist the temptation to get a too big one, though, so you could just put your hands into it, and then you'd get all tangled up in it during fights, and it would be awkward. Oh, man. See, this is why they stopped wearing them, I suspect. Cozy, but awkward. It's like the thing with capes from The Incredibles. I mean, you know, Napoleon has to go bad once for everybody else to just abandon the idea. Remember when Captain America had a cape, briefly? Oh, when he was nomad? What a great concept. When he got super angry, quit the Avengers, stormed to his ex-girlfriend's parents' house, decided that with no one to stop him, he could now have a cape. And then immediately tripped over it. Oh, Steve. Yeah. (laughs) So they are going through the sewers, still being pursued by the Genosian magistrates who don't give up very easily. And so it's basically guerrilla warfare time. Like Forge jumps out of the uh, water in the sewer apocalypse now style and tackles one of them. Charlotte has a shootout with one of them, gets shot dead on in the chest, but manages to kill her attacker. Well, and she's fine because the X-Men uniforms and their unstable molecules and their sexiness. She's protected by its aura of weaponized sexiness. Oh, You know, I kind of want to wear one of these myself. I don't care about that thong thing. I might trip because of the heels, though. Eh, they're not that high. They're kind of kitten heels. But yeah, this is actually the first time that Charlotte has killed anyone. I mean, she's been a police officer, but she's never had to actually end a life. And so she's a little shaken. Forge less so because... Because he's killed like three people since the beginning of the issue. Well, plus he was in Vietnam and there was the whole thing with all the demons and that kind of thing. Yeah, but we know it's Forge. Casual murder's just another Tuesday. That's right. It just adds another hair to his mustache every time. It's like those little prison tattoos of tears. Aw, but like after the whole Vietnam thing and him calling it an airstrike, wouldn't it be just like a huge bristly thing? Like how would he be able to keep it on his face? Would it absorb him? Maybe he's just the mustache and a shell of a man. Oh man, sometimes I wonder if I'm just that. Although I trimmed my beard like super short for the Wolverine cosplay, so I don't know about that now. I'm also mischaracterizing what he does as murder. It is very clearly self-defense, but he also very cheerfully kills people. Like he doesn't do the superhero, we have to use non-deadly force. He is entirely fine with just snapping necks all over the place. So they tie up the surviving Genosian magistrates and get the hell out of there, continuing to flee. Oh, that's not true. First they do tie up and threaten the prisoners though, so. Just to get more information. And Charlotte's actually a little horrified and tells Forge so. I play by the rules, Forge, even if they don't. I won't let you murder them. Wasn't about to try. Simply yanking their chains is all. Yeah, but I mean, you have killed a lot of people at this point, so it's a fairly credible threat. Well, you know. Think they have a point about our chances? Today's as good as day as any, Officer Jones, and better company than most. I kind of like buddy cops Charlotte Jones and Forge. I really do, too. I mean, everybody forgets about Forge as a character. He's usually just a background character. But in this era, he's actually kind of focal for a couple different stories, and... 
I would totally read more books about him, especially if he had a good character to bounce off of, like Charlotte Jones. Yeah, I feel like Forge would be fairly amicable to a buddy cop relationship. Like, he seems like a character who's kind of primed for that. I mean, that's basically what he's been doing with Banshee for the last little while anyway, so this isn't that far of a stretch. But Charlotte Jones is more interesting. Well, that's absolutely true. Now, meanwhile, this is not the only thing going on in New York, because, you know, it's Marvel, so there are probably like 10 superhero fights across the city going on at this moment. One of the things going on is that Jean Grey and the Beast are hanging out in X-Factor's base ship and sort of processing what's been going on lately. And Jean is still wearing the X-Men uniform that Banshee gave her. It specifically got the sleeves ripped off because of arm tentacles. Right. We are never going to let Marvel forget that arm tentacles thing. It was so incongruous and it was played so casually. Like, it was just like, oh, yep, got tentacles now. We're good. And Beast comments on the fact that she's wearing an X-Men uniform instead of her X-Factor one. What's this, though? Still wearing the X-Men uniform Banshee gave you? Figure on taking him up on his invitation and switching teams. Whatever we call ourselves, Beast, we're still the children of Charles Xavier. X-Men, X-Factor, New Mutants, even Excalibur, in the ways that matter, we're all one. Now, Jean is actually concerned about how isolated X-Factor has become, on ship towering above New York City, out of touch with humanity, when they're supposed to be, you know, building bridges between mutants and humankind. Yeah, I mean, I think she's worried about all the X-Teams, because right now they're all a little bit removed. And see, I had assumed, until she specified, that she meant that they were just unable to have functional adult relationships. Oh, we're still the children of Charles Xavier? No, but last time, when they talk about how they're the kids Xavier raised, about 50% of the time it's about his dream, and about 50% of the time it's about how fucked up they are. Uh, Those things are both true. Ah, Professor Xavier, purveyor of excellent ideals and terrible child-rearing. Yep. (laughs) So they're hanging out, moping up on top of ship. Forge and Charlotte Jones have just escaped the magistrates, but the magistrates aren't the only people from Genosha that are here. Do you remember the press gang? Those are sort of the mutants who are working for Genosha, even though Genosha is kind of anti-mutant. Okay, so that's, that's Wipeout and Pipeline and all those guys? Exactly, and specifically Wipeout and Pipeline, they have a plan because they know that Jenny Ransom and Philip Moreau, they've gotten the impression that they are probably an X-Factor's base ship. So they're not just chasing Forge down, they're also going after ship. And I really love the way this works. This is such a cool creative use of mutant powers. Right, Wipeout's got the power to cancel out powers. And he basically turns ship off by touching it. Because ship is, of course, sentient. And a lot of it, you know, using its various internal functions could qualify as superpowers in a way. That's a very wide definition of the term. That's the part where the game master is like, okay, that's not technically in the rules, but you know what? It's cool, so I'm going to allow it. Roll some dice. Well, Wipeout must get a natural 20 because ship is down for the count. Yup, and so at that point, just as the power starts to go off, the phone rings inside ship, and Gene picks up because, you know, whatever, phone call. And at that point, Pipeline, who can transmit basically people over data lines, modems in, as they call it, like a bunch of magistrates and the rest of the press gang. And that is awesome. That's also how Sue Dibney died. By someone teleporting through a phone? Yeah. Did I not read that story? That was an identity crisis. Oh, I think I just sort of repressed it then. Yeah. (laughs) But what it reminds me of, actually, is not identity crisis, which I prefer to not think about when possible, but in fact is the old science fiction show from the 90s, VR5, that nobody remembers. I certainly do not remember it. Can you enlighten me? Okay, so the very short version of VR5, this came out around the same time as Mantis and Earth 2. It was a, I'm not going to say a golden age, but um, possibly some kind of metal. Maybe I think you like Earth 2 more than I did. I like Earth 2 a lot. It's got Tim Curry as the villain in the first arc. But anyway, VR5, so there was this lady, and she, like, you know, worked in computers, and her mom had also worked in computers and um, had gotten stuck in the internet somehow, psychologically. And Like so, she couldn't stop playing solitaire? Or? Uh, more of a comatose kind of thing. So our main character develops this uh, new technology with the old 90s modem things where there's a receiver on the modem, and she would call people on the phone, and as soon as they picked up, she would hang up the receiver, like, onto her special modem, and thus hack into their brains and be in their subconscious minds. And it was awesome. So they're in Jean's unconscious mind. Uh, Well, no, they're in ship. But they're here for, uh, you know, Philip Moreau and Jenny Ransom, who they keep referring to as Unit 4817, because the Genosians totally dehumanize mutants. And X-Factor's not real happy about this whole thing. Right, so they are claiming that it is entirely fine for them to be in the U.S., blowing shit up, and also on ship because of something called the Doctrine of Hot Pursuit, which we thought was a joke, but it turns out is a real thing. Yeah, it sounded kind of like a mistranslated 80s action movie title, but in fact, according to thefreedictionary.com, it is, quote, 
a doctrine that provides that the police may enter the premises where they suspect a crime has been committed without a warrant when delay would endanger their lives or the lives of others and lead to the escape of the alleged perpetrator, also sometimes called fresh pursuit. I'm pretty sure that only works within your own jurisdiction, though. Yeah, and that maybe blowing up cop cars is a little bit outside of that doctrine. Yeah, what they are doing is not okay. I am pretty sure this is, like, really clearly not okay. Yeah, and we'll get into that going forward as far as how they can get away with it the way that they are. But yeah, so there's a big fight, and the Genotians are very much prepared. They are great at taking mutants out, at neutralizing their powers, that sort of thing, and proceed to mostly do so until Forge and Charlotte outside see Wipeout with his hands on the ship, sort of depowering it, get a vague idea of what's going on, and decide to enter the fray themselves. And take him down immediately. It's actually really cool. Forge has this, like, Dazzler grenade thing based on Dazzler's powers that has all these wacko colored lights and, like, confetti and streamers and stuff. I assume that the invention of this grenade is why they haven't bothered to track Dazzler down, because they basically have her in weapon form. I like this idea. Like, why bother dealing with complicated human beings when you can just reproduce their powers in handy grenade form? I mean, that's basically the principle behind a lot of generations of Sentinels. So this works pretty well because Ship suddenly comes back to life incredibly indignant, allowing the heroes to take out the Genotians pretty quickly. The cops show up to arrest the press gang and X-Factor is shocked that these guys are all mutants. Like they're working for a government that basically runs on the oppression of their kind. And Jean says as much. You have powers, yet you serve a regime that enslaves those like you. I serve my country, lady, and proudly. You're the villains here, not us. So this is interesting to me because we have an oppressed class very directly and enthusiastically helping the oppressors. I think it's really cute how you treat that like it's shocking or new. I'm not going to say it's shocking or new in the real world by any means. I was going to say your wide-eyed innocence is one of your best qualities, Miles. <laughs> yeah, well. But it's always cool to see X-Men explore stuff like this, to not just be like, mutants are an oppressed class and leave it at that, but to examine some of the nuance of that. And so it's nice to see Claremont, even toward the end of his run, doing so in ways he hasn't very much. Well, and in a state like Genosha, I mean, it's a really common and really well-documented social phenomenon that people who are parts of marginalized and oppressed groups will learn to basically identify with their oppressors. Some of that is because it's a survival tactic. Some of it is because that's a byproduct of a kind of nationalist rhetoric that basically tells us if someone's successful, we're all successful, that our success as a nation, as a larger group, is measured by the success of our wealthiest or our most powerful citizens, which is a really good way of convincing, for example, poor people to vote against their self-interest. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah, that's important. That's the thing to look at. Nationalism is iffy and results in angry, marauding groups of Genosian mutants assaulting sentient spaceships in New York City. Exactly. So the Genosians are about to be carted off until suddenly a limo shows up. The person inside talks briefly to the uh, highest ranking police officer there, and the Genosians are suddenly entirely off the hook. Nobody is happy about this. Charlotte Jones is especially angry, considering that these are a group of people who she has seen kill a fellow police officer. I mean, her partner, which is, like, even worse. And Beast does the only thing he can think of, which is to quietly leak the story to Trish Tilby and Neil Conan, hoping that they might be able to help. Hey, Neil Conan, he was there for the uh, Fall of the Mutants. Yeah, I he is intrepid NPR TV reporter Neil Conan. So we have a corrupt foreign regime with its hooks into the U.S. government, apparently— that may only be stopped by those in the media brave enough to confront power even though they're being told not to? How prescient. I mean, it really, really is. I know, obviously, this was written many years ago, but goddamn. Well, that's why I said prescient. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, the Genotians are off the hook, and it seems like the only consequences of this story are that, you know, a cop died and a lot of property was blown up. But we do have some character development that comes out of it. Well, or team development, because Banshee and Forge decide they're going to join X-Factor. I should say, by the way, I assume Charlotte Jones spends literally all of her off-panel time doing paperwork. Like, the shit she gets involved in and the number of times she discharges her weapon on a daily basis based on the X-Factor comics. Like, how does she ever leave a desk? I'd imagine that's part of why she has her son Timmy at home alone or with her mother-in-law so much, just because she's just doing paperwork for like eight hours a day in addition to her job on the beat. Unless she's a team of clone cyborgs. Oh, right, right. This That's takes, why she's yeah, everywhere. This, I assume that this is how it works. This makes sense. So, yeah, we have Forge and Banshee who are, if not on X-Factor, at least very closely allied with it at this point. 
We also have the aforementioned amnesiac Colossus deciding that, you know, this world really isn't for him. He does not want anything to do with all these superheroes living isolated from the world in the big robot ship. I mean, he's with his partner, Callisto, at this point, and that's cool. But, like, he just wants to be an artist. They just want to be people. Yeah, he and Callisto have no interest in this bullshit. And Jean actually is the one who wants to force them to stay. She is shouted down, but it's an interesting, I think, precursor to something we'll see a lot of from Jean later, just in terms of her dedication to the X-Men and her absolute willingness to press gang other people into serving that dedication. Oh, press gang, but not press gang, like capital press gang, press gang like this. Lowercase, exactly. So, yeah, that's where we leave our status quo, basically until the Extinction Agenda. I mean, there's the Gambit and Storm stuff we already covered, but we also have a couple of issues that pretty much stand alone, or at least won't be addressed for a while, and I gotta say, I really enjoy both of the next issues we're gonna talk about. The first of those is Uncanny X-Men number 268, Madripoor Knights, best known for making a cameo appearance in the video for Weird Al's White and Nerdy. It totally is. It's also known for being the first fully Jim Lee penciled issue of his ongoing run, because while he did start penciling in 267, the art in that issue was credited as Homage Studios. It was Lee, it was Will Sportatio, and Scott Williams. And it's kind of hard to tell who does exactly what part in that issue, but in this, it's straight up Lee doing all of the penciling. Boy, howdy is it ever. Oh yeah, this is some very Jim Lee, Jim Lee going on here. So I like to think that you can identify Jim Lee pencils by the cocktail dresses. You're totally right, because there's a scene where there are tiny cocktail dresses in this issue, and they Mm -hmm. reminded me a lot of the ones that everybody's wearing in the Wedding of Cyclops and Jean Grey, like, wedding album special. Mm -hmm. The little super tight sheath dresses with big fucking bows on top. Wow. That's the only type of formal dress Jim Lee draws. Those seem really impractical. I mean, they were all over the 90s. Were they? Yeah, they were. Oh, I was mainly just wearing a a lot of flannel, which I guess is kind of what I still do. I am aware of them because in my attempts to go back and revisit the missed media of my childhood, I have stumbled across them on multiple occasions. So anyway, we're going to be covering this issue a little bit differently than it plays out on the page. Because on the page, it cuts back and forth between 1941 in Madripoor and 1990 in Madripoor. Yes, yes, I love this. I have this weird soft spot for like Wolverine having World War II adventures with Cap and the Howling Commandos stories. They always have to be one-shots. I don't care about them if they're more than one issue long. Ideally, they should have at least one Howling Commando. If they don't, they should have at least one, like... Anyway, they've got to have at least one really good mustache. That's reasonable, and this one totally does. Good. So, in our 1990 portion of the story, we see Black Widow. Hey, you know, Black Widow, like, from the Avengers. And this is the era when she's running around in the gray pajamas suit. I love that suit. With the big spiders on it. I love the profile of the suit. I love the high collar on it. I'm not super fond of the actual design. I really like her haircut. Yes, she's got short red hair. I don't know. This is what she looked like in her Marvel Universe Series 3 trading card. So that was my first encounter with Black Widow, and I guess I kind of imprinted. This is also, in fact, the specific issue cover. That's the cover that gives you power-ups for three-star Black Widow in uh, Marvel Puzzle Quest. That's so very specific. And then you can use Colossus to throw her at people. As one should. Which, at everyone, throw everyone. I know I've been over this before, but I just, I cannot emphasize it enough. So Black Widow is fighting a bunch of ninjas, like she does, in Madripoor, and it's actually not going very well because it turns out there are a lot of ninjas. That's because I assume she's still getting over the era of her utterly shitty relationship with Daredevil and having to get rescued all the time and is still getting back any kind of fighting skills or autonomy as a character, which she basically just didn't have for a while. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. It was an unfortunate era. Well, she is in fact rescued here as well, with not just the expected snicked, but also a pam, 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 zippity zap, bam, pow! I'd really like to think that Jubilee just yells her sound effects. I think she might. So, yeah, it's Wolverine and Jubilee, and also Psylocke, who tends not to have sound effects because she's like a stealthy ninja these days. And that's why she'll never be as cool as Jubilee. But I really do love how much Jubilee kind of like cramps Wolverine's style, you know? Dude, what the hell? What are you talking about? There is one member of this triumvirate currently who has style. And I'll give you a hint, it is not Wolverine. I will give you another hint. It's also not Psylocke. And a third hint is that it's Jubilee. Okay, fair point. But I mean, I can just imagine Wolverine getting super grumpy all the time because he's trying to do all this stealthy stuff to make a really dramatic entrance and she's just throwing colors and fireworks around all the hell over the place. Are you kidding? Wolverine isn't subtle. I mean, we're going to see this play out 
real vividly later this issue, but Wolverine is like the least subtle man in the Marvel Universe. His idea of subtlety is putting on an eye patch and insisting that his name is Patch when he's clearly recognizable as himself. Okay, that is perhaps an excellent He is point. not a subtle man. But yeah, we are here with our B team. We are here with Wolverine, Psylocke, and Jubilee doing their thing in Madripoor, and in this case, rescuing Black Widow, who uh, thanks them just in time to collapse into unconsciousness. They do what you do when you find an unconscious teammate, which is take them home and dress them in skimpy lingerie. Yeah, when Black Widow wakes up, she's wearing like, I mean, I assume these must have been the undergarments under her Black Widow spider suit thing. Absolutely not. They're loose and filmy. They wouldn't have fit comfortably under something that skin tight, and they definitely would have shown, which they don't. I So, so they took her back and they dressed her up in that. That seems perhaps somewhat questionable. It really, really does. I mean, and this is something we're going to see a lot. Theory. Theory. Maybe they learned about medical care from the Morlocks. Oh, right. After they healed Xavier, they put him in the bondage gear. Right. They figure that adequate medical care involves treating someone for their injuries and dressing them up in a sexy new outfit. Okay. I mean, that seems reasonable. That seems likely. This is something we're going to see a lot of in Jim Lee's run of X-Men, which is to say women being perhaps sexier than the scene calls for. And that's very much the case here. I think the word you're looking for, Miles, is sexualized. Perhaps that's fewer syllables. It's true. But yeah, you know, Jim Lee's an excellent artist, and that's definitely a downside in some scenes that he draws. I have such mixed feelings about Jim Lee and the way he draws women, because he does that, but he also draws really badass, really buff women. Right, I know. We saw that in the arc where uh, Psylocke became a ninja that he drew. Like, she looks super sexy, yes, but also super badass sometimes. Yeah, and it's a mixed bag, and it's something that's very much of, and also part of the creation of its era. This is the 90s sexy action chick kind of personified. Oh yeah, big time. Now, Jubilee's a little annoyed by this and says so. Is it like my imagination or is every old buddy Wolvie's got in the whole world like some incredibly, fabulously gorgeous babe? Now, Captain America is going to show up in the 1941 segments of this issue. And you were saying that you assumed that she meant Captain America, too. Yeah, I would also like to point out that it probably doesn't help that, you know, they apparently took Black Widow home and dressed her up in like sexalicious lingerie. There is that. Yeah. But once Black Widow is out of bed, Jubilee is boredly playing Cat's Cradle with her own fireworks, which is a nice little background image. And they're sort of uh, thinking about what's going on here. She's also glaring intently at Psylocke's butt, which is a detail I appreciate. I do enjoy how annoyed Jubilee perpetually is with the like stereotypically attractive women Wolverine surrounds himself with. But it also takes me back to that amazing Wolverine cover where he's glaring at Nightcrawler's dick. That's a great cover. It's a great cover with one of the best stories ever attached to it. Again, I'll link in the visual companion. So apparently what's going on here is that Matsuo Tsurayaba, who was the uh, hand agent who was responsible for transforming Psylocke into a ninja, is going to be meeting up with Fenris, the Strucker twins from Germany, for purposes unknown here in Madripoor. We can assume those purposes are nefarious, since we've seen all of these people in action, and they're all just sort of awful. And Black Widow and Logan look at each other and start to wonder if this is just like that same thing from 50 years ago. Hint, it's not. But that doesn't stop the issue from cutting back and forth between the two timelines, and it is pretty exciting and engaging, so let's go back to 1941. 1941. Madripoor, a still novice Captain America, resplendent in red, white, and blue, dives into a pile of ninjas holding his shield behind him for some goddamn reason. I mean, Jim Lee draws a lot of sort of pin-up looking poses, and his art indeed would be repurposed for all kinds of merchandise and promotional materials. So it looks good for that, but you'd think if ninjas are pointing swords at you, maybe the shield could go in front, right? Captain America has come to the underbelly of the world to save a mustachioed Russian guy with sudden help from Logan, wielding two lead pipes. Because at this point, since it was 1941, based on the original continuity, Logan didn't have any claws yet. They were just implanted by Weapon X later on. This, of course, will be retconned later, but for now we can just say he's not bothering with the claws because, goddammit, he's got lead pipes. Or this might have been one of the parts where he didn't know he had claws because his memories had been removed. That would be my guess. God damn it, Wolverine. And so, um, yeah, they're able to quickly dispatch the ninjas, who uh, conveniently melt into dust video game style. Hint, the hand is bad at everything. They're good at melting when they die, I guess. I mean, kind of, but then they come back, so it's not even that permanent. Well, there is that. But yeah, here's where we find out that Captain America and Logan actually met ages ago. So I'm starting to wonder, based on when this takes place, like, are Wolverine and Cable competing for this backstory thing I never told you about but is actually really awesome? They are for now. Later on, they're going to team up and have a shared backstory that we never found out about. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense then. And so uh, Logan introduces himself and comments, I like the suit. Just the thing for playing it sly and sneaky. That isn't my style. I'm supposed to be a symbol. 
Never met one of those before. Me? I'm just a guy. Name's Logan. He's flirting, right? I'm gonna say yes. Tumblr, this one's for you. So they make their way to Seraph's. This will later be called the Princess Bar. Um, Like from Wolverine's own series. Yeah, exactly. Same bar. Where Logan immediately spills a drink on Baron Strucker. And Strucker is highly offended, saying it's a respectable establishment. No, no, Miles, Miles, he is a 40s Marvel Comics Nazi. He clearly says, this is a respectable establishment. Okay, yes, good point. Now, we've seen Baron Strucker before in the pages of X-Men, specifically in Uncanny X-Men number 161, which was a flashback issue where he ended up fighting against Xavier and Magneto when they first revealed their powers to each other in the process of engaging in that fight. He's evil. He's a Nazi. He's Hydra. He's a jerk. He's got an eye patch. He's got a big claw for one hand, doesn't he? It's called the Satan Claw. It's more of a gauntlet than a claw. But it's called the Satan Claw, and that's the important part. Of fucking course it is. I want a Satan Claw. I mean, not like a Nazi one, just a a non-Nazi one. Speaking of Satans, at Emerald City, I went over and hung out with Kel McDonald and Meredith McLaren and Corey Bing for a while. And they summarized all of Dragon Ball Z for me. Holy shit, Because I've, I've never seen any of it, and it was intense. Apparently there is a fellow in it named Mr. Satan, though. There totally is. And he's, he's just a regular guy. There are also fights that last seriously like 20 episodes. I gave up after a while. So I gather. So Logan replies to this being a respectable establishment by just saying, yup, till they let you goose steppers in. Man, Nazis are terrible. And I love seeing heroes fuck with Nazis, whether it's fighting them or insulting them or whatever. Nazis are the ultimate villain because they're just terrible. They have no redeeming qualities. Can we take a brief current events moment here? Okay. And just say Hydra are Nazis, right? I mean, Hydra are pretty much Nazis. If you have to work that hard to establish your villains as not Nazis, you have already lost that fight. Yeah, I mean, like, technically they're a slightly different overlapping organ, but, but come on, they're Nazis. Let's you just You know, be the real. fact that they don't have, you know, the party membership cards or whatever, like, yeah, no, they're Nazis. Come on. If it quacks like a Nazi, then it's a Nazi duck. Do Nazis quack? Nazi ducks do. Do they? I would assume so. Are there Nazi ducks? I mean, I would believe that. Ducks are kind of awful. Yeah, you know. Anyway, basically... <laughs> Basically, the thing about Nazis is they're sort of like zombies and robots in comic books in that you don't have to worry about being mean to them and doing terrible things to them because literally nobody is rooting for them. And if they are, they're bad people. So um, after this confrontation, uh, the owner of the bar, Seraph, steps in and is super annoyed at people for, you know, ruining the peace in her bar. She clearly knows Logan. And actually, as she yells at him, picks him up by the scruff of his neck to do so. This is uh, notable for one main reason, which she's is about that, two feet shorter than he is. Well, she's officially three foot three, according to the Marvel database. She's a tiny, tiny human. So she's exactly two feet shorter than he is. Oh, you know, I, I guess she kind of is. But she's really awesome. She's like a super feisty, badass lady running this barn in the seedy part of town in Madripoor. Dude, she runs a bar in Madripoor. Do you know how you get to own bars in Madripoor? Probably by having some people killed. You win them in cage fights. That is literally the only way that you can transfer ownership of a deed to a drinking establishment in Madripoor. I don't know if that's true, but I assume that it is based on the fact that it would be awesome. Let's just go ahead and call that canon. But speaking of canon, I looked up more about Seraph because I was so impressed with her. So she actually comes back a lot. Apparently, way in the past, she seduced Logan on behalf of Romulus, who, God, I'm not even going to talk about that guy. And she taught Logan to kill with subtlety and style during this. She herself was later killed by Sabretooth and with her dying words transferred a blood debt that she had to Viper to Logan. So then Logan had to do whatever Viper said because Logan was her bud and her lover. But it turned out she really didn't get killed by Sabretooth. She just managed to transfer the debt away and escape in time to start her band of all-female mercenaries. So what you're saying is that she's just an average Madripoor bartender. Pretty much. And also that I love her so much and I need to track down her other appearances, even if it means I have to read about stupid Romulus more. What's Romulus's deal anyway? Like, six episodes worth of stuff is his deal. Okay, then. <laughs> so, um, anyway, after this confrontation with Nazis and the awesome Seraph, Logan brings drinks back to his table, toasting with a L'chaim. It's funny because it's in Yiddish. I actually like the idea that Logan's just super multicultural. and No, uh, I assume that it's funny because it's in Yiddish and he's pointedly fuck-youing at the Nazis with it. Oh, I didn't catch that, but that actually makes it even better. I feel great about that. Now, Captain America notes that spilling his drink on Baron Strucker and bumping into him looked pretty deliberate, so what's up with that? Well, says Logan, um, that would be how you subtly tag someone with a scent you can follow. Captain America's a little taken aback. That sounds like something an animal would do. Human being is an animal, bub. Though most animals probably wouldn't take that as much of a compliment. And their Russian compatriot, the gentleman Captain America was there to save, explains that Strucker has allied with the Hand 
in order to abscond with Petrovich's charge, one Natasha Romanoff. Now, Petrovich and Natasha Romanoff, those are going to be familiar names if you are familiar with Black Widow, because Natasha is Black Widow, and Petrovich is sort of her father figure that raised her. Or her handler, depending on where you're going with that. Her backstory, while not quite as convoluted as Wolverine's, may involve roughly the same number of implanted memories. So they all agree, well, we've got to get this little girl back because the hand sucks and the Nazis suck, and if they're taking her, then... A, you shouldn't steal little girls, and B, it's probably for evil purposes. I mean, it's a fair assumption that if someone is kidnapping a kid, it's for evil. Well, right, but I mean, like... If they're military groups and stuff. I mean, like, really evil purposes. Not just regular evil. Super evil. Here's the thing. What we're going to find out is that the Hand wants to train this kid to be their lead assassin. And honestly, in terms of, like, evil purposes the Hand could be kidnapping a kid for, for what we've seen them do and what we've seen their deal is, that's actually, like fairly low-key nefariousness for the hand. I guess that's true. That's only slightly evil compared to the mega evil they sometimes do. Yeah, I mean, they get pretty evil. Which brings up another important point. At what point is Natasha in her training here? Because she's got two different potential origin stories. One involves her being mostly raised by Petrovich. The other one, the one that's more soundly canonical by now, but wasn't quite as solidly so at this point, involves her being raised from early childhood within the Black Widow program. No, I think those are actually not even as relevant. I think what it is is that there was a rumor that she was descended from the czars of Russia, which would make her Wait, there was? Yes, there was. And it would make her good at kung fu. Was this an actual thing in the comics or is this the thing you just made up? No, no, no. It was in the comics. Are czars good assassins? I'm going to say probably. And the hand knows this because like bees, they can sense royalty? I'm going to say probably. Huh. I'm glad we cleared this up. Well, anyway, Wolverine, Petrovich, and Captain America aren't going to stand for this. So they go after the car, which is carrying Natasha, and Wolverine just jump kicks straight through the windshield of it while it drives and kicks the driver and it's kind of awesome. There's a big gunfight and Logan shields Natasha in the car, being riddled with bullets and apparently dying in the process. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. It's Wolverine. He'll be fine. It's a flashback from 1941 that he is having in 1990, so you can be reasonably certain he's going to survive this one. However, Captain America, Petrovich, and young Natasha are not certain. They just saw this guy selflessly sacrifice himself for a little girl. They're impressed and sad, and they go to the American consulate to hopefully end this whole mess. When they arrive at the consulate, Nazis and ninjas are lying in wait. It turns out the whole thing was a trap set up by a Nazi-sympathizing American officer. And this is where we learn about the Hand's plan to mold Natasha into being their master assassin in order to take out the communists and divide up the world for the Axis powers. And the United States. And the thing is, like, everyone's trying to, you know, make her their master assassin, but, like, she gets taken out like a punk all the time in this era. Yeah, it might not be the best judgment, but to be fair... The Hand and the Nazis do not always have the best judgment. No, the Hand has terrible judgment. That's why they never win. They never successfully dominate the world because they just make stupid choices at every possible juncture. Yeah, there is that. So just as Natasha is being brainwashed and about to be forced to kill Petrovich, her father figure, with a sword, at that point, a beat-up but still very much alive Logan comes in and kills a bunch of Nazis and kills a bunch of ninjas and frees her. The good guy's hero pose, but the baddies aren't done. Their choice. Their funeral. Seraph swoops in to pick up the good guys. Uh, she doesn't literally swoop in. Gets Captain Petrovich and Natasha to their plane and uh, then makes fun of Logan a bunch because Natasha calls him little uncle. Which is kind of adorable, I gotta God, say. God, I always just want to do her voice in a really, like, ridiculous, mustn't squirrel, bad movie Russian accent. Which would work, except that when I do that, it inevitably turns into the Count. Oh, from Sesame Street? Ah, 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 ah. One ninja. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> two, two hand ninja. <laughs> oh man, we were talking actually before the episode with Kyle about the um the censored uh, count song from Sesame three, Street. Three, three Nazi officers. <laughs> but anyway, you should watch that video if you haven't because it's great. Just search for it on YouTube. It's awesome. It's pretty brilliant. It is one of the best uses of very simple editing in history and knowledge. So that wraps up the 1941 story. I mean, Natasha's been rescued, Wolverine and Captain America have met, Petrovich still has his mustache, so everything seems pretty much okay. So that brings us back to 1990 on the yacht where Matsuo and Fenris are going to be meeting. The good guys are showing up to hopefully interrupt this and stop whatever mischief that they're up to. The good guys have decided to sneak on, so we've got the adult women, Natasha and Betsy in formal wearing little tiny Jim Lee cocktail dresses. We've got Jubilee as a dim sum delivery boy. And we've just got Logan in his full costume because Logan doesn't give a fuck. It's pretty great. Like, he just shows up and basically picks a fight. 
And then his allies all come back dressed in the normal superhero costumes to join in. But I do actually want to cut back to when they were first getting on the ship because Jubilee once again is really annoyed at how like sexified all these women are. And how she's, she's annoyed that kid. everyone else has more butts than she does. But the important part is that as she's grumbling to herself about this, there's a great little wiggle wiggle sound effect as she shakes her own butt to like prove her point to herself. And it's really cute and hilarious. And I like it. Yeah, Jubilee is great. I love her, like, slightly cartoonier than the rest of the cast sound effects. Totally, yeah. Yeah, she is delightful. I never really got her because my intro to Jubilee was through the animated series, and she's just kind of the kid and obnoxious and all of the kid ways on that. Dude, reading this era of X-Men, I totally get why Jubilee is so many people's favorite character. She is unassailably awesome. She totally is, yeah. So the heroes manage to kick the crap out of everybody, but it turns out Matsuo and the Fenris twins, it's not really them. It's just body doubles. This whole thing was a diversion so that the real Matsuo and Fenris could have their meeting somewhere else. They're not actually trying to kidnap a little girl from the Black Widow program or anything like that or brainwash assassins. They're literally just having a meeting like that is the sinister repeat of 50 years ago. Yeah, it's a little iffy how these things are involved. I mean, yes, it's the Hand and some Nazi types whose last name are Strucker meeting up in Madripoor, but that's about the only over. I don't think the Strucker twins are actually competent enough to be Nazis, and I also don't think they're driven by any kind of ideology. I think they're literally just rich assholes at I this point. I think they are just rich assholes. They're rich assholes with powers. Yeah. So it's a charming little done-in-one story. It's actually really fun. It doesn't have a lot of effect on continuity at all, but I found myself really enjoying this one. Like, when Claremont and Jim Lee are on, they are super on. Speaking of charming little one-shots... Our next story takes us back to a character we haven't seen since she dove through the Siege Perilous with Master Mold to save her teammates what feels like about a decade ago. Well, it was not Uncanny X-Men number 247. We're now in 269, so it was kind of a while ago, yeah. Yeah, about a year if this is coming out bi-monthly. And we see a little bit more about how that went for Rogue. I mean, when we've seen somebody go into the Siege Perilous before, they just go into the portal and then we see them later after they come out. What we see here is her being broken down and rebuilt basically atom by atom. We see her skeleton, her muscle structure, then her skin. You were saying it kind of reminded you of uh, Captain Britain stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, this is basically Roma and Merlin's MO for reconstructing heroes. Yeah, and given that the Siege Perilous comes from Roma, that makes some sense. And so Rogue wakes up in the X-Men's Outback base. Naked. In her old bedroom with her old memories. And this is weird. I mean, not the naked part. That's been pretty consistent. But as far as her still having her memories and as far as her just popping back right where she was in the first place when she went in. Maybe the Siege Perilous, instead of stripping away her memories, decided it was just going to pull out Carol Danvers because Rogue, for the first time in a very long time, is also alone in her head. And doesn't have Miss Marvel's powers that she absorbed way back in her first appearance, along with Carol's memories in Avengers Annual Number 10. Rogue learns this the fun way by jumping out of a window, assuming she can fly. Yeah, it doesn't go so well. Thankfully, she's decent at landing, at least. Now, we should point out, so she wakes up naked and she just throws on a t-shirt, but that's all she's wearing. And, like, in addition to the way that Jim Lee draws her face as much more feminine and much, I guess, cuter than she used to be drawn. Well, and she's going to be running around for a lot of this issue and a lot of the next few and what people sort of think of or what I see a lot of people describe as the sexy rogue outfit, which is the ripped up costume she wears in the Savage Land. So I was thinking about this because we've talked a lot about how with younger characters, like the New Mutants or whatever, when they're sexualized, it's kind of weird because, you know, they're basically teenagers. But Rogue, I mean, she is an adult. Like, she's a young adult, yes, but she's definitely an adult, and she's also always been a very sexual character. Like, that's been a part of her that she was relatively comfortable with, even though the touch aspect of sexuality was something that she obviously wasn't. Yeah, I think 90s Rogue is actually a really, really good case study in the difference between objectification and sexualization and, and having a character be sexual. Because 90s Rogue is sexy. Like, that is part of how she presents herself. And... That's fine, and it's cool, and it's part of her characterization. It makes sense with the way she dresses. Also, there's one really critical distinction, though, between her and other characters in this era, and that's that for Rogue, you know, tattered clothing, torn clothing, skimpy clothing is often used to code vulnerability in addition to sexiness. Right. Think about Rogue's powers. Exactly. The more flesh of hers is exposed, the more dangerous she is to everybody yeah, around her. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that's a double-edged sword, but for her... For Rogue, having her costume torn isn't vulnerability. Yeah. I think that's a really critical difference. And I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of the sort of cheesecakey stuff that Jim Lee does with Rogue doesn't feel as off as it might with another character. And I mean, some of it, too, is that it does fit what we've seen of her personality. And by the way, we had a conversation with a gentleman on Twitter recently 
who was deeply offended at the amount of feminist content on the podcast. And I just want to dedicate the segment to him. <laughs> yes, indeed. We so. hear you, buddy. We hear you. We feel that you were right in pointing out that this is something that colors our podcast and we should probably have more of it. Exactly. So thank you, man. This is here because of you. <laughs> really, I do genuinely hope you're proud of yourself because we feel that this is important. But anyway, I talked about it, you know, in terms of Barry Windsor Smith and Storm which is that when everything is sexy, nothing's sexy. And I think Rogue's a great example of sexy done right here. This is a place where sexy is a point of characterization and it means something and it's got narrative significance and character significance and it works. Yeah, I mean, I know sometimes we can come off as like very critical of sexualization in comics, but like we're only critical of it when it sucks, when it works well like this. Yeah, sexy people are great. We love sexy people. Yeah, basically, gratuity makes for poor storytelling. We are above all. All else, snobs. So Rogue is awake and is quickly learning that uh, Carol's powers that she absorbed don't work. And she catches a news report that just happens to be on where she hears that Mystique, you know, her mom, just got killed. And that a little while back, Destiny, another member of Freedom Force, and her other mom also got killed. And so Well, she's, shit. She's a little freaked out. Now, we, the readers know that since we didn't see what happened in Mystique's death scene, that maybe the Valerie Cooper who's on TV explaining what happened and promoting Jacob fucking Reese, the Shadow King's current host, to lead the investigation, maybe there's something up with that. Rogue, however, has no idea. Also, Destiny is definitely dead. That's true. And so Rogue runs out trying to figure out what to do in her skimpy t-shirt and falls right into the middle of all the Reavers who have come back to their base. Man, I hate those dreams when I'm just like, running somewhere in a hurry, and I'm not wearing any pants, and then I just fall in the middle of a bunch of fucking reavers. Just a bunch of jerk cyborgs. What's up with that? It's just it's some weird subconscious thing. It's the worst. Right. The worst. Speaking of reavers, we see a new one being constructed by Pierce, the leader of the reavers, that being the new Skullbuster, because the last one got killed on Muir Island. They're making a new one out of actually that one pilot that uh, Banshee knew that almost took them to Hollywood that one time. Cillian Markham, I think. Uh, yeah, exactly. Now, Rogue looks like she's in serious trouble. She's only got access to her own power. She doesn't have any of the strength or invulnerability or flight that she's become used to. Dubiously, fortunately for her, those powers do all come back to save her, but they don't come back to Rogue. They come back in the form of a newly incarnated Ms. Marvel. Right, Carol Danvers, in her lightning-bolted black swimsuit that she was wearing in this era, shows up and kicks the crap out of the Reavers. And Rogue runs. You got what you wanted? You're out of my head with a physical body again. You're free. You and me, we're quits. Rogue runs and finds Gateway, hoping he can teleport her out of there. He is completely frozen, so she kisses him, gains his powers, and teleports the hell out of there. Yeah, she realizes as she gains his powers and also gains some of his memories that he's basically bound to both the Outback base and to the Reavers. He can't oppose them. But once she gains his teleportation ability, she gets out of there. She also briefly gets very dark brown skin, which is kind of uncomfortable and I don't know how to feel about. That shouldn't be a side effect unless it is literally part of his superpower set. Right, yeah. Like she turns blue when she's Nightcrawler, that sort of thing. Right, but the blueness is part of Nightcrawler's mutation. Like it's specifically a byproduct of the X gene. It's part of his superpowers. It's not a baseline human trait. Ms. Marvel gets caught up in the teleportation portal as well, but she wakes up on Muir Isle again. And she wakes up beside a heavily armored, evil, sexy Moira McTaggart and Amanda Sefton, that's Nightcrawler's sister and sometimes girlfriend, who's dressed a little like the Dark Child. They've got Polaris, who's currently huge and buff, half embedded in a wall, and a confused Legion, whose face is half Jack Wayne's, and he is, I believe, wearing a flowered dress for no apparent reason, which is fine. It looks comfortable. Yeah, you know, it looks pretty cozy. But yeah, Jack Wayne, as a reminder, is one of Legion's personalities, I believe specifically the telekinetic one, who's like super evil, and when he takes Legion over, it's bad times. Legion tries to explain what's happening, clearly freaking out. It's not my fault. I'm as much a victim here as anyone. Blame Banshee and Forge and especially Moro McTaggart the cow if they hadn't made me use Cerebro to search for their stupid X-Men friends. The evil one would never have found me. None of this would have happened. Now it's too late. And he rips open his own face to reveal a very confident-looking Jacob Rees, like the host of the Shadow King. Wah, and, I, wah. and I love the way this is drawn in the next couple of panels, because we see, you know, Legion's body wearing that dress looking just like a relatively normal person. And then this almost like thought bubble kind of thing superimposed over his face with the Shadow King's face, you know, threatening Carol Danvers, threatening everybody around him and making it very clear that all the shit that's been going on in Muir Isle for a while is because he has been gradually possessing everybody. Evil Sexy Moira is evil and sexy because of him. Legion's been doing all sorts of evil things and killed Destiny because of him. It is all the Shadow King. He is very much the big bad right now. Meanwhile, Rogue 
finds herself in the Savage Land all alone. Um, it's time for some cliff diving near dinosaurs and generally swinging around vines, escaping T-Rexes, spearing fish, walking dramatically in front of sunsets and losing pieces of her costume because she subscribes to the Scott Summers School of Island Survival. Yeah, also uh, Corsair, that one time in the Star Jammers miniseries. If you're having to survive anywhere for more than about five minutes, your costume is going to get, like, super ripped up. I mean, that kind of figures, especially if you're in a much warmer climate than your costume's made for, although I guess hers would have been made for the Outback, so yeah. I don't know. She hangs out in the Savage Land for its implied quite a while before eventually... Carol Danvers catches up with her, but she's looking a little different these days. She is freaky zombie Carol Danvers, and man, Lee draws scary really well. Yeah, like this zombified Ms. Marvel is super creepy, and they get in a big fight, and as they do, the zombification sort of goes back and forth between Carol and Rogue. The powers also go back and forth, and just as Rogue is starting to win, just as she's about to take out Ms. Marvel, she decides, no. I already did something horrible to this person, and even though this isn't the original Ms. Marvel, because she's off in space with the Starjammers, I can't do that again. What's evident, by the way, the reason this is happening, is that they've only got one person's worth of life between the two of them. They've been split in two bodies, but there's not enough there to sustain both of them. Yeah, we haven't seen the Siege Perilous do anything like this before. Usually it just makes people naked. Well, okay, it did that part takes away their memories and gives them a new life. And with Rogue, she's just where she was, except that now the other personality that was banging around in her head has been embodied separately. Eh, Siege Perilous is a tricksy guy. And so just as Carol Danvers gains the upper hand and is about to kill Rogue, there's a zap and an impressive-looking boot at the edge of the panel, and Rogue falls unconscious. Rogue wakes up in Sauron's old Savage Land Citadel. This is the one we first saw, I believe, in Marvel Fanfare 1 through 4. And Sauron, for those of you who have forgotten, is a were-pteranodon who eats mutant life force and runs around in tiny jean shorts. And hypnotizes people. Right, that too. Yeah, this was a fortress he had in the Savage Land. But Sauron's not here. We do see Rogue sort of secured in a weird machine of some sort, and she's actually feeling pretty good, like way better than she was before. She's got her powers back, she's no longer, you know, turning gradually zombified, and her captor releases her from the machine. She's hooked up in explaining the situation that only one of the two of them could survive, and we pull back to see a splash page of Magneto looking like he's trying to recruit us for the U.S. Army to fight some Nazis, saying, I chose you. Now get in the Pokeball. That makes me really happy. So Magneto here, it's important to note, is wearing his old costume, like the red and the purple one with the big cape and like those sort of rivets around his neck and the helmet. This is classic Magneto in a classic building in a classic old setting. We are going to some really old school stuff here. Like this is not Magneto in his M-covered fuchsia tunic looking thing. This is not Magneto trying to be the headmaster of a school. This is like classic supervillain Magneto. Yeah. This is Wednesday's We Wear Pink Magneto. So that's going to be a real big deal, but not for a surprisingly long time since the Extinction Agenda is coming up and Rogue and Magneto don't really factor in. But first, we're going to space! So various aliens are looking through a spaceship for a human woman. The aliens are led by the Strike Lord, a dude in a fabulous Pierce-esque fuchsia cape and an elaborate golden helmet slash mask. The woman who they're after is none other than Lila Cheney, who, as an editorial note tells us, obviously didn't die in New Mutants number 70. I like how they don't even try to explain it beyond that. They're just like, whatever, she's alive, it's cool. Dude, first of all, it's X-Men, are we ever going to be surprised when someone's alive? Well, okay. Second, it's Lila fucking Cheney. You think a son's going to stop her? Absolutely true. And uh, Lila is running the hell away from them, causing quite the ruckus, and during this fight, the hull of the spaceship is breached by a gunshot. She floats off into space, smiling, and suddenly teleports. She has escaped the Strike Lord. She has escaped these various aliens. Perhaps this will be important, but not until after the Extinction Agenda. In the meantime, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Hey, Jane Miles, I just read and loved Cy Spurrier's X-Club miniseries, but I'm confused by the different relationship that mutants have with Terrigen there compared to present comics. Though the Terrigen evidently will kill Nemesis when he's exposed to it, it does actually imbue him with extraordinary abilities. Moreover, Rao successfully synthesizes a cure to save Nemesis. Did I miss something that took Rao's cure off the table in current comics? Okay, Anonymous. Given that other mutants, most notably Quicksilver and Callisto, have previously survived extensive exposure to the Terrigen Mists, and the framing of Mpox is a new development in the wake of the Terrigen Bomb, it's fair to assume that the content of the Terrigen Clouds has changed pretty significantly over time, via either natural mutation or the introduction of some kind of pollutants. 
it seems likely then that Rao's cure would no longer be effective at this point. Although it would have been pretty funny if at the beginning of like Death of X number one, Kavita Rao just showed up and like gave Cyclops a shot and then the whole thing never happened. <laughs> but no, um, I think that that's a pretty prizable away contradiction because again, we've seen the effects of the Terrigen Mists on mutants very pretty significantly over time. It would have been nice for them to at least mention it, but eh, there are only so many pages. So it goes. GPAC3 asks on Tumblr, If Captain Britain had an ongoing series, would you consider it an X-book? What about Longshot? I'm not asking about your coverage, just the metaphysics. So those would be kind of gray areas, and I guess that would mostly depend on how much the books overlapped with X-concepts and X-history. Now, I would probably, between the two, Captain Britain and Longshot, call Longshot more of an X-book simply because most of his appearances have been X-related. With Captain Britain, maybe less of an X-book just because he had such an extensive history before he co-founded Excalibur and started hanging out with a bunch of mutants. But the thing is, when Longshot has solo adventures, they're almost never X-related. His solo miniseries, no X-connections. His one other one-shot, no X-connections. True, even if the stuff from his solo miniseries all did become very X after the fact. And actually his other solo miniseries, no real X-connections. Yeah, true, I mean, true, a, true. a few, but... But that said, I mean, I kind of love these ambiguously X characters and their books. Because they make the Marvel Universe feel much more cohesive and expansive. I don't think the X-Men would be nearly as cool or as conceptually effective without other teams and genres to compare and contrast with. So, you know, as convenient as it is for the X-Men to be kind of shunted off in their corner of the Marvel Universe, having those weird overlaps, having books that you're not really sure if they're X-Men books or not, I wouldn't want to see that go away. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported show, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a range of fictional entities— Today, I believe, it's all about Magneto. For a time, I, Magneto, chose a different path. No more was I the vanguard of Homo Superior's necessary revolution. I traded iron-filing sky messages and a possibly phallic obsession with missiles for educational administration and an impressively monogrammed fuchsia tunic. But Alison Demas and Joe Salvatore, my first acolytes, if you will reminded me of the superiority of my earlier path. Now, the time for dinosaur bases, the time for red and purple, and the time for the mutant master of magnetism have returned. And let's hear now from the angry Claremontian narrator. You woke expecting a fresh start, Eric William Green. After all, you had sacrificed your very life for your comrades. Would a new beginning have been too much to ask? But when has one of your ilk been so lucky? Certainly not now, for where you walk, the specter of Ron Paul Kirkley cannot be far behind. And with that... Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the X-Teams fight yet another future across 1990s annuals, and Franklin Richards does what he does best. In Days of Future Present. 